From Connecticut Public Radio in Hartford, I'm Kyone Wolf, and this is us in the time of coronavirus. Connecticut entered phase one of reopening this week, so how did restaurants prepare to open their outdoor seating? And what did some hairstylists think about being stopped from opening at the last minute? What do big thinkers predict the world will be like once the dust of the pandemic has settled? People are distancing and taking care of themselves, but they're eager to open up and eager to behave like human beings again. You'll hear from historian Mary Frances Berry. Plus, why are more people hearing this sound in their homes? Baguette ready. A bread baking expert joins us with his musings on the art and science of this hobby a lot of us have taken up lately. Plus, an 11 year old on whether or not she sees this pandemic as a defining moment in her life. Stay tuned for the penultimate episode of Us in the Time of Coronavirus. That's after the news. From Connecticut Public Radio in Hartford, this is Us in the Time of Coronavirus. I'm Kyone Wolf. Today, you'll hear from three big thinkers about predictions they made back in March and how those predictions have stood up over all this time. You'll meet a bread baker who tells us about one bread to rule us all and an 11-year-old on whether or not she sees this pandemic as a defining point in her life. But first, May 20th was the long-awaited date in Connecticut when the first phase of reopening began after the coronavirus caused life as we know it to be put on hold. Phase one allowed offices and malls to be opened with precautions. Restaurants, museums, and zoos could open outdoor areas as well. Salons and barbershops were initially part of phase one, but with no less than 48 hours before they were supposed to open, Governor Ned Lamont announced that the decision to include them in that phase had been reversed. Here's Lamont at his daily briefing on May 18th. In the last, um, you know, week, a few days, two things happened. Um, I would say, number one, I heard from a lot of the stylists. I heard from a lot of the folks that run um, the hair salons. And they said, give us a little more time. We're just not ready. We're not ready from, um, you know, the employee point of view, feeling comfortable coming back, getting um, some of the cleaning agents and things they wanted. They wanted an extra, um, you know, a week or two. Stylists like Sierra Del Gigante and Danbury and Georgianne DaCosta from Shelton were some of the voices that the governor heard from. Even if we have masks, gloves, and the face shields, that's not preventing anyone from getting sick. God forbid we have a client that coughs, or God forbid there's someone in the salon that's asymptomatic. You never know, regardless of the protective equipment or not, we're still literally on top of the clients for, you know, it could be up to two hours, depending what we're doing. Governor Lamont should be choosing humanity over vanity. We do not belong in phase one. Del Gigante and DaCosta spoke with Connecticut Public Radio reporter Frankie Graziano in mid-May. I wanted to hear more from salon owners who were making preparations to open up on the 20th. When they got the news on the 18th that they wouldn't be included in phase one as planned, some of them responded with frustration and anger. We are being told now that we cannot open hair salons until early June. Early June, whatever that means. I don't even know at this point. And my wife just fell coming out of the salon and hurt herself because she's so stunned and we're just torn in every flippin' direction right now, racing to make stuff happen, to get our business that we work so hard. We work so hard and we're trying to get it up and running because we finally have the go-aheads and all the guidelines. I was literally on the phone with Grandma Health Department this morning, an hour before Lamont made the announcement, just confirming that we have all the proper PPE for our employees 
and now it's just ripped out from under us again less than two days before we're supposed to open. That was from a video that Bo Barczyk posted on our Facebook page. She, along with her wife, Goja Barczyk, co-owns Green Lotus Salon and Wellness in Cromwell. And I asked them to back up to when they thought they were opening on May 20th. What did they think of the governor's decision to include them in phase one? There is a lot of mixed emotions. You know, there's there's definitely fear just because of the fear of the unknown. We still don't know. I mean, we hear about COVID and we know people that have dealt with COVID, but I mean, you can elaborate. Yeah, there's a lot of question marks to it. And I'm, I'm recovering from cancer personally, too. So we're extra, extra cautious. So we weighed a lot of our options and we met with our team. We had a Zoom meeting and we wanted to hear how they were feeling because we work together. I mean, it's not just us. It's our team. And together we decided, yes, we're going to open May 20th. We put into place all the government guidelines and we added our own as well that were more so. Like what? Um, the blow drying that was allowed and then not allowed. Tell me about that. <laughs> Initially, when May 20th was released as a date of reopening for hair salons, blow dries were completely prohibited. The same day, that evening, after the news briefing with the governor, it was released that, okay, it's allowed now. Honestly, the whole blow dry thing was, was, it just kind of threw us a little bit just because the beginning was, hey, this is for your best health. It's best if you don't do this. And then suddenly it was like, you know what? Actually, it's okay. You can do it. But why was it like, hey, it's really a bad idea to have this this service performed, but then two seconds later, I was like, oh, no, actually, it's okay. Why was it okay two seconds later? And what swayed that decision? And that brings us to this week when the governor announced that, after all, hair salons will not be opening on May 20th. Honestly, if the decision was made ahead of time and it was like, hey, listen, this it's not safe, we respect that decision. But the fact that we all went into gear, okay, let's get all the necessary things to open. Let's call every single guest in our books because we, at this point, have everybody to reschedule, which is such an effort. And then not even a day and a half before our opening, where we are literally working morning till midnight every day, we're exhausted. And it's like, hey, you know what? Never mind. All that work you just did, waste. It's no respect for our industry, and that's that's the problem. We've stood by the government through all of this. I would not want to be in his shoes right now um, trying to make these decisions. For everyone, it's very difficult, especially when it's not your particular area of expertise. But the fact that we're given so little notice is just absolutely unacceptable. We have 132 clients scheduled in the next two weeks, then now we have to call again and reschedule. It's, it's a lot of work and a lot of money, a lot of time and energy. I, f- I, I just feel like I, it's I too feel last so minute. It's so too deflated. last minute. This is my phone blew up. As soon as the news was released, it was exploding with friends, clients, just absolutely in shock, just completely appalled. It's absurd. And what would you say to Governor Lamont, if you could say something to him? I would like to give him a haircut. (laughs) I would love 30 minutes of his time. (laughs) That was Bo Barczyk and Gosha Barczyk, co-owners of Green Lotus Salon and Wellness in Cromwell. Thomas Mitchell is the mastermind behind 180 Barbershop in Manchester. It's a two-year-old shop, but he's been cutting hair for over 20 years. I asked him to take me back to early this week, when he thought he'd be opening his doors on Wednesday, and then he found out 
not so fast. Ooh, ouch, ouch. Um, I actually had, I had all the barbers here actually at the shop. And this was kind of our walkthrough of procedures. We've spent thousands of dollars preparing. We've been up till three, four, five o'clock in the morning trying to find different things, hand sanitizers, disinfectant wipes, PPE, because of the new CAPE policy and new CAPE for every client, which I think is wise. I'm not, I'm not against any of the PPE um, protections. We had to install a washer and dryer. So we had to hire a plumber. We had to hire an electrician. I mean, we, we really went all out and sacrificed so that we could open and we could open well. So you took on more debt Absolutely. to do this. Just money that you didn't have coming in. But what else was there to do? It was a sink or swim kind of situation. You know, if, the, if they say that May 20th, you're eligible to open your door, you got to make it happen. And so I had all my staff here. We were actually giving each other haircuts, getting each other ready for looking good. Because you got to look good on day one or exactly. else what's going on. <laughs> exactly. So we were here and um, I actually had another shop owner call me um, while I was while I was giving one of my barbers a haircut. And he said, did you hear? And I said, what? And he said, you know, the governor pushed it back to June. And, and, and we all thought it was a joke. We said, you got to be kidding me, you know? And so Everybody kind of slowly packed their stuff up and, you know, kind of walked out the door. All right. You know, you know, this stinks. And but I know they're very disappointed. I'm disappointed as well. You know, a day and a half before less than 48 hours. That's a tough blow. I would have rather in the beginning just not put us in phase one, you know, and I would and I would have understand that. That was Thomas Mitchell of 180 Barbershop in Manchester. Finally, Sophie Tong, a stylist at Fringe Hairworks in West Hartford. She's been doing this work for over 13 years, and I asked her what she felt when she found out that the governor changed his mind. Wow, it's a mixed bag, I think. I think I was somewhat relieved because, like I said, I don't think we should have been part of phase one. But at the same time, we've been preparing this for this for a month now. And I'm like, um, did you have appointments booked and all this stuff? We had a lot of appointments booked. And then I've just spent like all morning rescheduling all of the appointments that are definitely affected. And then with the governor saying there's a possibility, like a tentative start date in June, but there's no definitive start date. So do I move my June appointments? I, I don't know. It's everything's so up in the air. And I feel like... He blindsided us, and I think, you know, a lot of clients are have been gracious and flexible and kind and amazing, but you get that one or two that are taking their anger out on you. And What kind of things do they say? Well, I'd rather not disclose, but threatening to fire me, things like that, so taking their business elsewhere. So that, I mean, that hurts a lot. It's, it's out of our control. It's not, it's nothing that we're doing. I'm not canceling appointments. It's not like you're going on a cruise. Yeah. Or going to a rave. Yeah. Yeah. I'm not, it's not my choice. <laughs> you know, I have no control over it. Does any of this make you question whether you want to keep doing this work? You know, I always thought that if I ever won the lottery, I would probably still do hair because I love it so much. And I do. It's a creative outlet. But although I do love hair and I, I miss doing hair so much, I think this part of humanity <laughs> has uh, 
taken a toll on me, honestly. But, you know, I just need to sleep on it. <laughs> I'll, I'll think differently tomorrow. <laughs> I know, then we'll have another interview. <laughs> Every day with Sophie Tong. Every day with Every- Sophie Tong. <laughs> That's the name of your show. No, I think um, right now my emotions are really heightened considering hearing the news and, you know, managing people's appointments. So your emotions are heightened, much like your clients' emotions are heightened and everyone's emotions are heightened. Exactly, exactly. That's where we are right now. That's where we are right now. So be nice. Be nice. Be kind. Be nice. Be nice and kind. Yeah. That was Sophie Tong of Fringe Hairworks in West Hartford. Restaurants have been hit really hard by the coronavirus pandemic. Some have shut down. Many have found ways to adapt and innovate to meet the needs of customers in this new world of social distance. We've talked about some of this on the show. As of Wednesday, restaurants can now serve sit-down customers as long as they're seated outdoors and tables are six feet apart. I wanted to hear what some of these restaurateurs were concerned or hopeful about as the big day came. Doug Grabe has been the co-owner of a restaurant and bar called Little Pub for more than 10 years. There's actually five Little Pub restaurants across southern Connecticut. They all have outdoor patios. I asked Doug what his reaction was when he found out he could open those patios. Oh, we're excited. I mean, look, we exist to, you know, uh, welcome people into our our, um, our restaurants. And, but it's got its own unique set of challenges as well. Uh, you know, we, we stabilized ourselves as a takeout business. And, okay, we've been doing that for two months. And now we're going back to table service. And, you know, what does that mean? I mean, you know, you have a server there and a mask. Is that, is that weird? Um, but now you have limited capacity outside. How do you manage How do you manage that? I mean, you know, it's going to be a reservation-only basis, so because nobody can wait for tables, right? You just don't have the capacity to have people go sit at a bar and wait for a table to open up. So we're reservation-only. Okay, fine, we'll go do that. But we have fewer seats now, right? So even if you have a reservation, you really can't linger. I mean, you can't. I mean, you could sit at a table for 90 minutes, but if I have a reservation backing that up because we're trying to make use of the limited space, I don't encourage people that to move along in a polite manner, right? Yeah, like when they get there, it's like you're going to have to say, hey, welcome, here's your seat. Uh, may I take a drink order? By the way, uh, we've only got about an hour or... Yeah, I guess we're gonna get like a bunch of you know we're not gonna get a bunch of like hourglasses and flip them up you know here's your stand <laughs> running out but I mean so actually that may not be it. the worst idea I don't know Doug <laughs> I don't know I don't know but I mean so you have all that and then it even gets weirder you think about what happens if somebody's drink goes down the wrong chute and they start coughing right and you drink some water yeah. the wrong way and all of a sudden they start coughing uncontrollably the rest of the tables are gonna freak out right I mean so what do you do then do you top them the old do you uh, you know, walk around and explain, no, I'm sorry, you just drank water the wrong way. Anyway, these are all, you know, the, the things that roll through the back of your head. Okay, what what could possibly go wrong here? But um, overall, we're super excited to get the patios reopened. Um, we believe the dining rooms are slated for June 20th. And um, again, for us, it's a step in the right direction. Um, there's lots of unknowns, but it's, uh, you know, stuff we're, we're pretty much used to doing. And uh, we'll figure it out. That was Doug Grabe, co-owner of Little Pub in Fairfield, Koskov, Old Saybrook, Wilton, and Stratford. He checked in with me after that first day came and went. He told me that he saw some regulars and some new faces, and he was surprised that, quote, 
All the masks, gloves, hand sanitizer, etc. now required to operate did not seem at all awkward, but in fact made guests more comfortable. Just a new aspect of the hospitality landscape these days. Next, Stella Jane is the owner of Stella's and Maisie's at 461 Capitol Ave in Hartford. The address matters because they just celebrated their fourth anniversary last month at this spot that is surrounded by government buildings, including the Capitol building. So when the state shut down, all those busybodies hankering for some curry chickpeas and sweet and spicy cornbread went home and stayed there. Stella's and Maisie's relied on delivery services to local residents to keep afloat. Now their patio's open. I asked Stella to tell me what she was working with. Right now our patio seats up to 16. And so we are just cutting that in half um, and placing four tables out uh, with two seats per table. They'll be about six and a half feet apart. And we'll see how that works for our guests. Um, I don't anticipate being full immediately. I think it'll take some time. I think uh, there's still a lot of apprehension from citizens in the state to just take our time um, and not rush into going back out and visiting establishments so quickly. Now you talk about your customers having some apprehension, but what about you as someone who has put her heart and soul into this business? Are you feeling apprehension or something else? Uh, No, I'm pretty comfortable. I just want to make sure our guests are comfortable. I want to have the patio open for those who are ready to sit on the patio and enjoy our food. But I also want to keep in mind that everyone isn't in a rush to do that. And so I still want to make those folks comfortable as well. So we'll still be offering delivery and takeout so we can um, help everyone. That's our goal. That's always been our goal, though. (laughs) That was Stella Jane of Stella's and Maisie's in Hartford. Finally, John Harris is the owner of White Horse Country Pub in New Preston, Connecticut. They've been around for 11 years. And I asked him to describe some of the ways he's changing the way he runs his business to get going in phase one. Uh, We have several patios uh, with quite a large capacity. So we managed to remove half the tables, distance chairs at least six feet apart. And we're really sort of exceeding all these sort of state regulations and local health regulations at the moment with what we're doing. But the bathrooms and the doors and so on, they all have foot handles now, so people don't have to double-touch handles on the doors. We made one point of ingress to the restaurant where people would be seated and one point of egress. So everyone comes in one way and goes out a different way. We have hand sanitizers by the doors. We're using disposable menus. We have peroxide disinfectant that everything's wiped immediately. The bathrooms are now all single-use bathrooms and then disinfected after they've been utilized. So we're doing everything thoughtfully and responsibly and carefully. And we feel that we can keep with the staff wearing masks at all times with gloves and so on, that we can keep everybody safe and, and healthy. This has been a hell of a roller coaster in terms of being a human being during a pandemic and being a business owner. How has this been for you? How are you right now psychologically with everything? As I said to the staff, I said, these are exceptional times. Now it's time for everyone to be exceptional people. And I think that resonates. And I think everyone sort of stepped up. My, you know, and uh, as far as I go psychologically with it, my wife and I, um, Lisa and I, you know, we've, 
we've done what we can do with the restaurant and it is not being fatalistic but it just is what it is and we move forward so these are exceptional times and we will uh, sort of rise to the occasion we'll be fine That was John Harris, owner of White Horse Country Pub in New Preston, Connecticut. Next, take a look forward by taking a look back. Three big thinkers give us some context on why they see certain trends blossoming or breaking down as the world spins madly on. I'm Kyone Wolf. That's us in the time of coronavirus. After the break. This is Us in the Time of Coronavirus from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Kyone Wolf. Back on March 19th, when everything was closing down, Politico published a cover story called Coronavirus Will Change the World Permanently. Here's how. It featured essays from 34 big thinkers who predict what societal changes might come out of this crisis. I wanted to talk to every single person on that list. It felt comforting at such an early, raw stage to see some thoughtful predictions. Some essays were really scary to read, but a lot of them pointed out how we can take this pain and dysfunction and turn it into something that makes us all better. Now, it's been over two months since those forecasts were published, so I got in touch with three of its contributors to see what stuck. In a few minutes, we'll hear from Slate's Virginia Heffernan and historian Mary Frances Berry. But first, Astra Taylor is a documentarian, a writer, and the founder of The Debt Collective. Her piece in the article was titled, The Rules We've Lived By Won't All Apply. I asked her what she saw happening around her that made her consider what rules mean what and to whom. Well, as the pandemic hit, we saw extremely rapid changes in our political and social system. You know, in the matter of weeks, we saw the federal government conjure up trillions and trillions of dollars out of thin air without very much debate. At the state and local level, governors and mayors begin to institute moratoriums on rent, on evictions, halting debt collections, halting collections on student loans. We saw district attorneys freeing prisoners, nonviolent offenders who are at risk of coronavirus. We saw shelters suddenly made available for people who are unhoused. We saw employers, not enough of them, suddenly give people paid time off or hazard pay, so increasing their payments to employees overnight. We saw all these things suddenly happen in a sort of rapid fashion. And I think what we have to keep in mind then is that these things are possible. What I can imagine people thinking as you're talking is, yeah, that does prove that there is wiggle room here, that these are decisions being made by human beings and human beings are fallible and there are decisions that go into this that are right and wrong depending on the circumstance. But what I can also imagine people thinking is, well, weren't those rules there for a good reason? Like, wouldn't the consequence under any other circumstance of removing those rules be catastrophic? A lot of rules exist not because they're just but to maintain certain hierarchies or power dynamics, right? We're seeing an incredible double standard in the way that indebted entities are treated in the wake of the pandemic. After the 2008 financial crisis, interest rates have been very low. And so corporations have taken on enormous amounts of debt. And so part of the thing that we're seeing right now with these new relief packages is that they are getting public money because these corporations took on too much debt. 
regular people, on the other hand, are you know penalized if we're just behind on a payment, right? Our, our credit gets damaged or we can have very, very punitive consequences if we're just slightly behind <laughs> for reasons outside of our control. That's just one example of a kind of system that is not necessarily, uh, I would say, essential. It doesn't really make life better. It just makes life harder for regular people. I think we really have to be more critical about the old rules and ask why they're there and who they benefit. You know, rules can be just and rules can be unjust. It depends whose interests they're written in. Um, and there's you know, the middle ground of all of them. I mean, it isn't necessarily so black and white as this rule is totally just and this rule is totally unjust. And we're seeing these bendings and breakings to a degree that are temporary and some may be permanent. So when you've been seeing some of these changes, what do you predict will really stick in a meaningful way, these rule changes? And what do you think probably won't? So I think, you know, we're not going to see a mortgage moratorium that lasts indefinitely, but I think we might see people organizing around housing and sort of having a renewed awareness of how essential that is. On the student debt front, for example, there's the six-month moratorium in payments, and we're organizing people in that window to say, okay, you have some breathing room. Let's push that further and organize a movement that demands some form of cancellation. So we just saw in the fourth relief package, the HEROES Act, that the Democrats pushed for $10,000 of student loan cancellation, and they negotiated that down a bit. But that's something for regular people to organize around. So I think things don't stick without people getting organized. That's sort of essential to my perspective on democracy is the things we want as regular citizens aren't just handed to us. People have to mobilize. I think it's kind of essential that we as citizens look and say, okay, what aspects of these changes do we want to have become permanent? What do we want to build on? Because what we need to do ultimately is create a society that's more robust so that when another pandemic hits, because it's likely one will, people aren't so vulnerable to begin with. And now that we're seeing this sort of man behind the curtain, I'm sorry, person behind the curtain, <laughs> that we're seeing like this is all mechanics and these things can be affected by the circumstances we're in. And so I wonder what you think. I mean, in that broad sense, that psychological sense that we're all programmed to think this is how things go. And now because of the coronavirus, we're seeing that it truly is controlled by human beings who are fallible. So what do you predict in terms of the psychological effect of seeing these massive decisions being totally uprooted? This is a kind of trial run, in my opinion. So scientists have been warning of a pandemic like this and future pandemic scientists have also been warning about climate change and what the climate crisis will mean for our societies. You know, my hope is that we will learn from it and be humbled a bit and think about how we want to prepare moving forward. I don't think that that learning is guaranteed, right? We have to resist the temptation to just wish it would all go away. We're not living on our usual timeline, right? We're not living on the timeline of regular consumer society and, oh, it's summer, it's time to go on summer vacation and do our usual things. We're on, we're on the viruses timeline. And we're also on the timeline of greenhouse gases and climate tipping points. On the one hand, as you said, we're seeing that things are man-made and that we live by political and social rules that are human creations. But we also live in the natural world where the rules and the laws aren't man-made. The laws of thermodynamics and the laws of epidemiology are not under our control. And so there, there's a humbling, I think, here that has to happen that 
is a little terrifying, but I think has the potential to make our lives better if we can adapt to it. That was Astra Taylor. Check out her documentary, What is Democracy? And her book, Democracy May Not Exist, But We'll Miss It When It's Gone. Virginia Heffernan is best known as the co-host of Trump Cast from Slate, and she's a writer for the LA Times and Wired. Her piece in that Politico article was called The Tyranny of Habit No More. She explained to me why, in the pandemic's earliest days, she sought comfort in a famous book about a plague. Like a lot of people, I just like tried to find some security blanket to hold on to when I first heard about the virus in China. And um, for me, you know, that wasn't trying to get a degree in epidemiology at Twitter.com, although (laughs) I'm not immune to that. So I just turned to some old comforting favorites about plagues past. And one of them is, of course, the Camus La Peste, the plague about a fictional plague that, that is unlike ours, an actual plague caused by uh, this particular kind of bacterium. But so in, in North Africa, in a port town, that he, he thinks that this town is utterly banal and boring. And that in a way, their calcified habits are what made the disease spread, that they literally came close to death because they were, and, and in, in many cases died, because they couldn't give up their habits, in particular, because it's Camus, of getting and spending. People couldn't give up bowling. They couldn't give up banal courtship rituals. They couldn't give up the streetcar. And for that, they ended up paying the price. And so here we are, a few months into this pandemic, as we know it, You talk a lot about imagination and how that is confined by habits and not set free. So in the span of this pandemic so far, have you seen people expand themselves? I've seen people capable of something we almost can't admit to ourselves is the most radical collective action in the history of mankind. You know, Camus, super perverse in that book, but he would have loved that we all collectively decided to tank the economy, forget about the Dow, forfeit our jobs, forfeit our livelihoods. You know, I I lost a job and I lost my aunt in about the same period of time. We'd been talking about the possibilities of, of revolution and then we just kind of, our bodies did it. We did not want to give this virus any quarter in our bodies. How did hundreds of millions of people do this in the United States? Right. I mean, in the United States, we really, really, really value choice, individual choice. I mean, that's the found that's one of the foundations of this whole thing is you can't tell me what to do. And usually our interests, unfortunately, are pretty self-centered. But here we are for the first time in all of our lifetime, most of our lifetimes, having to make decisions uh, based on the greater good. And most of us have made those decisions against our habits. Yeah. So I'm not, I'm not sure that the, and maybe because I have existentialists in my head, but I'm not sure the arc of history bends toward justice, but we can confidently say it bends toward life and not death, that whatever survives, survives. So for most of us, when it comes right down to it, all the things that we thought were most important to us have now been subverted to our commitment to the species. I don't think that always means good things, but it certainly means that you know, finally, most of us would rather stay alive and persist on the planet. Now, what do you think about the future of our habits and our 
innate surrender to what we've done before? Do you think that the habits that we're developing now or the help, the habits that we're dismantling right now may be discarded forever? Or will we, will we be reprogrammed by this completely fundamentally? Like, what do you, what do you think? One revelation of all the things I beat myself up over mistreatment of the environment and somehow unwillingness to embrace any austerity measures and my spending habits. Those are probably the two things that I lose most sleep over. And look, all of a sudden, no commuting, no housekeeper, no, you know, there's a list of things that, oh, no restaurants. Look at that. I guess I just needed to be stopped from spending for a single month. Turns out, just not that important. Things that I thought was were cornerstones of my existence, you know, on my to-do list. I mean, it's just like Camus says, you hold on to these holy fetishes for so long. And then when those things, the rugs pulled out from underneath you, you start getting somewhere. You start to be able to interrogate what works for you along pragmatic lines. Is it expensive? And along kind of moral spiritual lines, like really do I need to use up that many resources and in this world and it turns out I don't. That was writer and the host of Slate's Trumpcast, Virginia Heffernan. Finally, who better than a celebrated historian to give you a peek into the future? I was so excited to speak with Mary Frances Berry. She's the Geraldine R. Siegel Professor of American Social Thought and a professor of history at the University of Pennsylvania. She's also the former chairwoman of the United States Commission on Civil Rights. Her piece in the Politico article that gave me such hope was called A Hunger for Diversion. Her look forward begins about 100 years ago. What happened after the Spanish flu and uh, World War I came to an end then is that Americans uh, began to look around for entertainment, for community, for being with other people, for enjoying themselves, which they had not been able to do uh, during all this time. And their search for entertainment was uh, facilitated by the introduction of cars and the radio, all of which uh, helped. I'm a big fan of that one. Yes, I know you are. <laughs> and uh, look back at that period, we know that uh, the 19th Amendment was added to the Constitution, so women were able to vote for the first time. There's the anniversary, which we sort of have missed with the pandemic. And it was the era of women with bobbed hair, going out dancing, going to speakeasies, and the Charleston became big. And so People were letting the good times roll, as they say in New Orleans nowadays. And the economy, as we know, quickly rebounded once the pandemic was over. And it was flourishing for about 10 years. Um, The stock market was up. People were making money. People had jobs. And they could support the uh, search for entertainment and all the other things that they were looking for. I think that when this pandemic is over, uh, I projected back in March that the same thing, part of it is based on human behavior in general. Human beings like to be around other human beings. They may not like every human being in the world, but they like to be around other people, a sense of community. What I thought at the time is only reinforced by the fact of what has happened with the opening ups that have taken place Now, almost everywhere that there's been an opening up, you see them going to the beach, you see them walking around, 
People are going to uh, sit outside at restaurants. People are sort of wanting to be with other people and have some fun and some entertainment. People are distancing and taking care of themselves, but they're eager to open up and eager to behave like human beings again. And I think that that's what will happen. I also think that the economy will quickly rebound as it did in the uh, night, the roaring 20s, uh, as we called it. And what happens after that, we don't know, because 10 years later, in the 1920s, we had the Great Depression, which was caused by irrational investment. But I think in the immediate aftermath of the pandemic, we will see uh, flourishing and another kind of uh, emphasis on people trying to get back to normal as much as possible. From just listening to you and hearing what you're saying and hearing your tone of voice, it sounds like there's a lot of hope in you and almost like a lot of excitement about what's coming up next. What role do you think hope and excitement has to do with making the choice to leave our houses and put our money down at a business and mingle with other people? How much of a role does that hope play? I'm an incurable optimist anyway. Uh, and based on what has happened in the past and based on what we all know about how human beings behave, and people who don't like being cooped up and not being able to do things. And there are people who have childcare problems. They have people who live in close quarters and who cannot uh, be in any sense relaxed while they're working at home or whatever it is. The vulnerable populations, and everybody knows this, people who are elderly and have you know compromised health, uh, we have to be careful. That's why all those nursing home deaths, as well as other reasons, are taking place. But I think that by and large, uh, there will be a, a different approaches to making us safe and people taking care and worrying about it and hoping that there won't be another uh, another resurgence. And the good news about the vaccine and the governments are talking about opening up manufacturing of it, getting ready for it before they even have done all the testing. Now, there will be people who will, you know, be suspicious and not wanting to, um, to get a vaccine. But I think the news about the vaccine helps uh, the mood of the country. And that and the opening up, I think, will be, and the fact that testing now, the latest news on testing is that we have enough tests all across the country uh, but that a lot of people are not getting tested. Uh, now the problem is getting people to go <laughs> to get a test, whereas for a while there weren't any tests or there weren't enough tests. So I am optimistic based on what I know about the history of the world and what I know about human behavior and what has happened in the past, although the past is not always a guide to the future. But I'm hopeful. That was historian, professor, and civil rights leader, Mary Frances Berry. We've got a link to the entire Politico article that I clung so desperately to on our website, ctpublic.org us. After the break, let your hair down and then put your hair back up and in a net because in our comfort segment, we're chatting with an expert on the ancient craft of bread baking, plus an 11-year-old in New Haven on whether or not she sees this pandemic as a defining moment in her life. I'm Kyone Wolf. That's next on Us in the Time of Coronavirus. Be right back. Right. 
This is Us in the Time of Coronavirus from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Kyone Wolf. You've arrived at the C segment of our show, The Comfort Segment, and one profoundly comforting sound is this. Don Dickey of West Hartford has heard that sound a lot because he's been teaching the art and science of bread baking for 35 years. There's no denying that people are rising to the occasion and making a lot of bread now that they've got time on their hands. I asked Don about what his students were most excited about making before the pandemic and what he's seen change since so many folks have been stuck at home. Before the pandemic, I was teaching a combination of cooking and baking classes. And uh, the bread classes were uh, all over the book. I would try to spread them out. I was doing a scone class in Weathersfield. Um, I ran a class, a bread tribute to James Beard, where we did three of Beard's breads. Okay, so let's let's dig into sourdough. I was thinking when I would talk to you that maybe we'd be broad about what we talked about, but I feel compelled to zero in on sourdough. How do you describe what sourdough is? What sets it apart from all the other breads? Why do you think so many people are really into sourdough right now? And give us, I know it's more complicated than a couple tips, but maybe some expert advice about how to not screw this up and go. Sure. Well, I wouldn't make it except my wife loves this stuff. And she came off of the keto diet to eat sourdough. She said, if you make sourdough, I'll jump off of keto to enjoy the sourdoughs. Sourdough is typically made incorporating some amount of natural wild yeast in what's called a starter, or if you're French, it's called a levain. And that both gives the bread a unique flavor. It's a tangy flavor, depending on the proportion of starter you use to the recipe. And it also gives it longevity because the nature of the acidity of the starter will help allay the growth of microbes like bacteria. So there's several reasons why sourdough tastes the way it is and why it's unique. But the reason why I think it's become popular is that normally it takes a long time to make sourdough and people didn't have that time. And right now with people working at home or just being home, time is something people have plenty of. And they can invest that time into making sourdough when they normally wouldn't have that kind of time. The other reason is that there's a yeast shortage out there. And if you're making sourdough, depending on how you make it, you might not need yeast. So there are actually two ways of making sourdough. And one is called pure sourdough, where the only leavening or rising agent in the bread is the sourdough starter itself. And you would typically use roughly a cup of starter, and I would estimate that a typical cup of starter would run around 275 to 300 grams. And then with that, you'd add another cup of water, and then the rest would be flour and salt to bring it up to where you need a dough. So there's another way to make sourdough, and this is quite popular, and that's taking sourdough starter and adding commercial yeast to it to make it rise faster. So you're using the starter purely as a flavoring agent. It gives it the same longevity because you've got the acidity in there. It gives it the flavor of sourdough, but it rises in an hour and a half, two hours instead of five or six six hours. So that's uh, one way to speed the process up. Now, the other thing that's unique about sourdough is how you bake it. Traditionally, we would often bake bread in a loaf pan to make sandwich bread or free form in a skillet. But some people have gotten to making sourdough in what's called a boule, which is a round loaf of bread 
inside a cast iron or aluminum Dutch oven. And that creates a mini atmosphere, a steamy atmosphere, and gives you a nice, dark, hard brown crust. And it was brought to light by a, a book by a fellow named Ken Forkish called Flour, Water, Yeast, Salt. It's, a, it's one of the free books that you can download from Amazon right now if you get one of those accounts. Uh, it's one of his free books, and you could download the PDF for free right now, which is kind of cool. When you make the most perfect sourdough loaf, you are mighty pleased with yourself. What do you eat with the sourdough? It would be steak au poivre, hands down. That would be my favorite, but I'm, a, I'm half Italian, so I'm, I'm really big on if I was going to make something to go with sourdough, it would probably be homemade fettuccine, and it would probably come with, uh, with fresh-made pesto because my wife's big on that. So that would be my killer meal, but uh, you know that, that, that's just me. Who has made the best sourdough you've ever had, and what made it so good? Um, if I'm, and I don't buy bread very often, but if I'm going to buy bread, my go-to is a bread company down in, in the Haven, Atticus Bakery, and their brand is called Chabasso. Well, it makes them so good. It's got the right crust. It's got the right texture. They, it's got lots of holes on the inside. If someone said, what's your favorite bread? My favorite bread is actually ciabatta. And what makes that unique are the big holes inside. It's easy to make bread that looks like Wonder Bread. Anybody can make that. It's hard to make bread with big holes inside. Uh, that takes a very skillful hand at dealing with very, very wet doughs. Doughs that are almost pourable. Doughs that would give most bread bakers nightmares because it's that sticky and difficult to handle. And I teach classes in rustic Italian bread making. And that's the challenge of that class is dealing with really wet progressively each week the doughs get wetter and wetter, very sticky doughs. That's, that's my go-to bread. It doesn't have to have sourdough in it, but it can. So sourdough just gives it a unique flavor, but the texture comes from the moisture. content, And that's where it's at. That's where it's at. For you to eat it. Go ahead. Try a piece of the sourdough bread. That was Don Dickey. You can see his recipes, photos, and tips on making the best bread ever at atthestove.com. Finally, meet Haley. She's 11 years old and living in New Haven. I asked her what she thought about Connecticut's phase one and all the stuff that's opening right now. Some people think that they should go ahead and reopen everything, and some people think we shouldn't rush it. What do you think? I think that we should wait because if we do open too soon, it could cause harm to a lot more people than intended. So, How has the coronavirus and all the things you have to do to keep safe, how do you think that'll affect how you are for the rest of your life, if at all? I would probably be a lot more cautious with things like these. Like every time we um, leave our house and come back, we have to wash our hands and things like that. Or like when we get our mail, we always disinfect it. So it's probably going to stick with me for a little while longer because it is just a safety thing that people probably should have been doing all along, but we haven't really like thought of it. So, Do you think the pandemic is going to be something that will define you, Haley, for the rest of your life? Or will it be sort of a blip? Or will it be something in between? 
I'd probably say it'd be something in between. Like, it wouldn't be something I'd really focus on in my personality, but it would be there. But it's just um, odd because I am so young. It's like something you never would expect to happen. When you go to bed at night, what's going through your head? Um, It's just been really like, How am I going to get through the next day? What am I going to do to keep myself, like, from just totally losing it and trying to keep myself in a space that is calming and is going to help me get through my day? How do you calm yourself down? I, I know a lot of people use meditation, deep breathing, they read, they run, they do push-ups, they stare at the clouds. So how do you ease your mind? What, what do you do? I like to read and sit down and kind of relax. Like I like to sit in my hammock on warm days and just read a book and do whatever. That was 11-year-old Haley from New Haven. There's just one episode left of this series. And on that final episode next week, you'll hear about my new show that's been in the works for a long time, but was delayed by the coronavirus. So stay tuned for more information on that final show next Saturday. You can contact me on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Kyone Wolf. And my email is cwolf at ctpublic.org. Us in the Time of Coronavirus was produced by me and Katie Talarski at Connecticut Public Radio in Hartford. The theme music is called This Is The Song by Punch Brothers. You can find more information and subscribe to this podcast at ctpublic.org slash us. Till next time, stay safe, wash your hands, and may tomorrow be a better day. We'll get by.